Coming up, Howie Mandel on how two simple words changed his life. What is the secret? You're 95 years old, you've been with Nani for 65 years, and for whatever reason, he said, I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm going to make a confession because I can't not anymore. And he said, I'm gay. When I first accidentally on a radio show, not unlike this, talked about having OCD, I really believed as a child of the 50s that that was the end of my career. Not only was it the end of my career, but it was the, it was the most embarrassing thing that I could talk about. And you put a, a, a lay person in a studio with 500 people, 10 cameras around them, all the lights glaring at them, you know, millions of dollars of cases and all these yeah. things. I noticed the glaze over her eyes. Like she wasn't really, this was overwhelming. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. I'm Richard Krause. Come on in, shut the door behind you, keep the cool air outside. It's nice and warm inside. And we've got some interesting stuff for you today. One interview, one long interview with a guy that you know quite well. He was Dr. Wayne Fiscus on St. Elsewhere. You know him as a latex glove-wearing stand-up comic. As the star of Bobby's World, he was a spokesman for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. Maybe you know him as the host of Deal or No Deal or a jurist on America's Got Talent. We're talking today with Howie Mandel about On My Way Out, The Secret Life of Nanny and Poppy. It's a short documentary, and no, he's not in it. He wrote a check. He says that's about all he did, was write checks every now and again when the filmmakers Brandon Gross and Skylar Gross needed some cash. He provided it, but he's very intensely proud of this film, and he has every right to be. It's a 40-minute short film that played at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it's about secrets. It's about the revealing of secrets, and having a secret is something that Howie Mandel relates to on a macro level. He understands what damage secrets can do to your psyche, soul, all that stuff, and he talks about it at length for the next half hour. Here is Howie Mandel talking about a lot of different stuff, including On My Way Out, The Secret Life of Nanny and Poppy. I loved this movie. Thank you so much. Congratulations on it. I appreciate that. You know, when you do something, and this is something that I've kind of approached with more passion than most things that I have done, and it's kind of weird because... Um, I believe that everyone should see this film, mm -hmm. everyone, you know, young, old, regardless of who you are or what you like, as long as you consider yourself a human, you should watch this film. And it's not a Howie Mandel movie. I'm not okay. in it. I just uh, was a small factor in making sure that it got done. And hopefully I'll make sure that it's it airs in a place where you can see it or it shows up. But uh, it's not what you would expect from me, but it's probably the one project I've, I've never been more passionate about. Is that right? Now, I, I will back up a little bit here because I don't want to give too much away about it. Right. I saw this at zero. I knew nothing about it, that your name was attached to it, Barry Abrich's name, who's a, a prominent Canadian uh, filmmaker. I thought, well, I want to have a look at this. I knew nothing about it. And about 10 minutes into this movie, something happens that rocked me, absolutely rocked me. And I don't know whether we give it away or not. Do we, are we giving it away? You know what? I, uh, yes. And I'll okay. tell you why, because it's the reason that I'm here and the reason that I'm part of it. 
you know, and I'll tell you how I got into it, and, okay. then, and then we'll talk about why. But, you know, I'm known for uh, doing, you know, predominantly comedy. Mm-hmm. And I was at YouTube Red selling a project through my production company. And uh, working there, there was this young kid, Brandon Gross, and I call him a kid. He's in his 30s, <laughs> but anybody in their 30s is a kid to me. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, what have you been doing? And this is a kid. I know his mom. I know his family. They were neighbors. <laughs> I have history. I had no idea he was working at YouTube. And he goes, I'm working here, and I'm shooting a documentary. And I go, oh, what, is a, what, what documentary are you shooting? Like, what are you doing? He goes, I don't know. I put a camera on. And he started, he began to tell me this story. And the story, how he got into it, I don't know if you're familiar about, because that's not really part of the movie, but I will tell you that. Yeah, the, the, the I'll tell you this part. I'll t- give you some backstory. So he's this young man in his 30s who, like everybody in their 30s in L.A., is uh, was at the time, and now he's, he's spoken for, but was mm-hmm. uh, trying to, uh, he was involved in the dating scene. Right. And But he didn't want to just date. He wanted to find somebody, that perfect match. So he told me he was going to do, you know, he was going to document his uh, his dates and some of that. And then he thought, well, I'll also add some advice to how do you, how do you find the perfect partner? And as it turns out, uh, his, his uh, grandmother and grandfather have been married for 65 years. They're 95 years old. <laughs> You talk about finding a partner, that, yeah. a lasting partnership. Not only that, they're not just two people who found each other and have stayed together and built a family and a successful business in America. They're both Holocaust survivors who were in, in camps and came over and escaped from Europe here to America. So they, they've had hardship in their life. So he sat down one day and he said to Poppy, that's how he referred to him, what's the secret? What is the secret? You're 95 years old. You've been with Nani for 65 years. And for whatever reason, he said, I'm going to tell you a secret. I'm going to make a confession because I can't not anymore. And he said, I'm gay. This is the part of the movie that knocked my socks off right, right. here. And I don't think it's... I don't think it ruins the movie yeah. to because and and when he said he and then he just continued rolling on them and what was involved in him coming out. And I said he's 95 years old. You should call this on my way out, which is the <laughs> title of this of this film without giving too much away about yeah. the film, but that is the crux of it. The reason that I got involved is I said so what are you doing? He goes, I don't know. My brother and I were co-directing. We're just documenting. We're documenting. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I don't know if you need me. I don't know if you want me. But I want this film to be made. This is a really important film to me. And he goes, what are you, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I don't know how much you know about me, but I, uh, you know, uh, I've been uh, on a soapbox about removing stigma mm-hmm. from secrets, predominantly mental health secrets, you know, and uh, that's what I do when I'm not, when you don't see me judging, when you don't see me acting, when you don't see me doing comedy, you know, my one, you know, little soapbox and I go and speak on Capitol Hill in, in Washington is because there is a stigma attached to, you know, maybe something different mentally or just being different, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, it's, and that's my soapbox. And this is the ultimate secret. And well, for Poppy, it is. And he says for men of his generation, you either 
didn't ever come out of the closet or you killed yourself. Right. But but for me, the story was just that's the reason he yeah. held the secret. And we could talk about that. But regardless, I believe that everybody has a secret. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we all get up in the morning and we do whatever we do to create a perception so that we believe that people will think whatever we want them to think of us. And regardless of being in a relationship, I mean, whether you put on a suit or whether you're wearing makeup, you know, you're a lady, it's because God forbid somebody should see us in right. our raw humanity that we are. Right. And that's even just on the outside, regardless of on the inside. You know, you don't want to tell somebody you're scared. You don't want to tell somebody you're not functioning. And for fear that you won't be accepted, that you won't be respected, we don't have respect for anybody that is somewhat different than us. And that goes whether it's not just about being gay. It's mm -hmm. about being a different gender. It's about believing in a different religion. You know, all of a sudden, whatever you perceive as being the right way or the way you are or the way your parents taught you to be is the right way. And everything else is kind of dissed. So this was the ultimate secret, somebody holding a secret and not even being to their own grandchildren and children who they were mm -hmm. for fear of what would the, the you know, you, t you just alluded to what the reason was that he, you know, created the secret and it was his own survival. But then, you know, so why not in the 70s? Why not in the 80s? Why now at 95, you know? And I think he could, just couldn't hold it in anymore. But I think that everybody has to watch this and everybody has to, I think everybody relates to it, gay, straight, whatever, that we're all, we all have a little, we're not open right. and we need to open. I think that's the answer to respecting each other and that's the answer to humanity and how we feel and how we think and how we believe. This was a really important, and I said this at the screening, and I'm so thrilled that you have supported it and that it was TIFF. It's probably the most important thing I have done to date and that I will ever do. You know, I love that I get to entertain. I feel like one of the luckiest people on earth. I love the projects that I'm involved in, but this is a project that if you watch it, and everybody has said it, we just came from the screening, You'll find something that you relate to in it and just because you're another human being. And hopefully it's about removing stigma and not about those people that are holding the secret, but about people who find out that there is a secret mm -hmm. with this great, loving, wonderful, lovable couple. You know, you may have some – you have to see that they're afraid to come out and tell you who they are because – and you is a – well, as general, the extended family. As the extended family, because of how you may take it. Yeah. So it's not about, somebody was saying in the question and answer, it's not about being yourself. It's about if you are yourself, we have to accept everybody. You have to accept me because I have mental health issues. You know, when I first talked, that's why I do Bell Let's Talk, mm -hmm. you know. When I first accidentally on a radio show, not unlike this, talked about having OCD, I really believed as a child of the 50s that that was the end of my career. Not only was it the end of my career, but it was the it was the most embarrassing thing that I could talk about and my family would be, you know, scarred with this forever. I wouldn't be able to get and and so that's why, you know, and then I tell the story and I've told the story many times. You know, I walked out into the street after the broadcast and I wanted to run into traffic, but somebody came and said, "I just heard you on the radio." And I thought, "Oh my god, this is my heart dropped into my stomach." And they said to me, I couldn't make eye contact. In my periphery, they said, me too. 
And that was, those are the two words that kind of have become the, the symbol of what I represent. It's, it's me too. It's us too. You have something. You know somebody. You're acting a certain way that isn't really true to who you are or how you feel at that moment. But you're so afraid, and we are all afraid, of being accepted, respected, invited, you know. Do you think that when you heard those words, me too, did it change everything for you in terms of, of the way that you perceive the news that you just blurted out on the radio, the the way that you communicate with people, you can feel open. Did it feel like a burden had been lifted? We only have about a minute left. We can come back to this on the other side. But Yes, and let's talk about it on the other side. It did feel like a burden personally had been lifted. But it also, my whole world was rocked because we all feel we're alone. We all mm-hmm. feel this is just me. You don't understand what's going on. You don't know. You don't understand. And I have to do this. And we'll talk about it when we come back. It changed my life. And my life is very different after just two words. It will have a life after that. You'll be able to get it on VOD. You will find it. You'll make sure I people so. see this. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the thought. I'm, I'm thrilled that I'm here. You know, as I said... I, I financed it, and I put Barry in touch. Barry is a as Barry a, Average. A, Barry Average is a renowned Canadian. Well, not that he's renowned all over mm-hmm. the world, but he lives here in Canada, my hometown, as a document, mm-hmm. uh, a filmmaker, yep. and a, a great creative. And uh, the world of documentaries is not something I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to Brandon and Skyler, the co-directors, listen, I know a producer. If I pay for it and put you together and let Barry build a team with you so that this can see fruition, right. will you do that? And they, they saw the light and allowed me to do that. All I did was write a check. But the point is that I said, I don't care. I've never done anything, you know, show business. Business is always the biggest word. This mm-hmm. is not – this particular film is not a good business. You know, well, the truth is... <laughs> documentaries it's just, are not, generally speaking, a good It's not a good, good business. business. There's no place... It's not even a full-length documentary. Yeah. So where does that air, you know? It's 40 minutes. But the truth was, I had to tell this story. This story is a 40-minute story. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. I don't need to stretch it out yeah. another 60 minutes because it could play and it could have a theatrical release because now it's a 90-minute documentary. It or would an, dilute the story. The story is so punchy in the way that it's presented. Uh, right off the top, there is a shocking revelation, which we talked about. And then the, the story progresses onto a natural conclusion that works really well in just 40 minutes. And you don't get that very often. Right. Well, you know, as a jokesmith, you know, yeah, the, yeah. I do it for a living. You know, words are very important. And, you know, if I could have a setup and a punchline... You know, and that's a really funny line that I get to do in my act. And I'm going to do that as my closing. God forbid somebody should say to me, you know what? That's a great hysterical closing line. Is there any way you could stretch it another 10 minutes? You can't do that. And by the same token, this film is a brilliant. I have nothing to do with the brilliance. It's a brilliant 40 minute story that is life changing. The good news is, you know, you don't really have to give up that much of your life to watch something that will change your life. And I talk, we were talking before the break about... And, and yeah, so it's about, if you're just joining us now, it's about holding on to secrets and then finally, even at age 95, having the power to let it go, to tell the secret. 
to tell everyone what's well, going on. Well, it's also about not being so precious. You know, before right. the, I talked about the reason I was, you know, uh, involved in removing stigmas mm-hmm. and being true to ourselves and true to everybody is being okay with um, sharing, you know, who you are. You know, very few people, very few moments in our life and interactions are really authentic. Right. You know, because we don't want to, you know, you don't want to sit and go, you know, I'm really uncomfortable. I'm not enjoying this party. I've I've been in a conversation and I'm really bored. You know, like uh, all the, and it's not about being rude or mean, but there is a sense of, um, on so many lesser levels than this movie, than than the message of this movie is, of just lying Mm -hmm. because we feel that it looks better. We look better this way, we sound better this way, and we will be more accepted this way. You know, it starts in school. Yeah. You know, people wearing, you're wearing the same label. Everybody's got Adidas. You can't have white sneakers with two stripes. You have to have the Adidas because everybody's going to think yeah. you have no money. You're not hip. You're not trendy. You know, you're so concerned about how people, that's how it starts. That's yeah. how life starts. So I got to be that guy, you know? So I had my mom buy me a pair of uh, shoes, sneakers with two stripes, and I took a Sharpie and painted the third. So from a distance, <laughs> it looked like I was as good as right. everyone else. Right. But ultimately, that is the message and the message that I got personally in my life when I copped accidentally to having mental health issues when somebody came up to me in the street who had heard me on the radio after I was so devastated that I had, you know, spilled the beans, per se, that uh, when they went, me too, I realized I'm not alone. We all suffer. We all are worried. We are all scared. We are all different. There's no two people mm-hmm. that are really alike. We try really hard to yeah. be alike. It's really fascinating. That's we want to dress like everybody we see. We want to sound like everybody we're around. We want to, but we're not. And we have to celebrate that uniqueness. And we have to celebrate that the difference is the fact that we're all different. That's what makes us all alike. And what? exactly have the changes been? We've got a couple minutes left here. What exactly have the changes been since those two words for you personally? One word, empathy, Mm. you know, and there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. Empathy is not sympathy. Empathy is the ability, which I don't have and we don't, but but to try to perceive how you're feeling, how you're reacting to, you know, even, you know, I won't say something in the course of just trying to be funny if I believe that that may, if I can sense who you are, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I want to make you comfortable. Mm-hmm. If we're, if, if we, if the world had a little more empathy where we were more cognizant of other people rather than how uh, wrapped up we are in ourselves and not sharing, I think it would be a better, so when somebody said me too, I went, oh, so you're another person that suffers. Why am I so worried about myself? Maybe if we all just talk about it and we all just share and we share and are aware of other people, and that's what this is. When you watch this film, you have so much empathy for their predicament, and you could see how their predicament is a really hard example of maybe something you're going through in your life. Mm -hmm. And you see how you have empathy for the family. There's an extended family that we meet as well. The the film really focuses on Nanny and Poppy, but there there is an extended family, and we see 
the the results and the in some cases the pain and in some cases the joy of of what happens to this family. You know, aside from emotions, you know, we're taught scientifically that for every action there is a reaction, mm-hmm. but that goes in life too. And everything you chose to, you choose to say, do, and look like, and wherever you show up, there is a reaction. You don't know of this little uh, what do you call it when a plane leaves a. Uh, what you leave in your path. There's oh, like the, a the, the jet stream. It is. There's yeah. a jet stream in life. You know, there really is. You're always what you say affects. You're just stamping people. Uh, you've come back to your hometown to talk to people about this and make sure that people see it. How does it feel being back in Toronto? This is so exciting. You know, everything's kind of, I realize at this point in my career, serendipitous. You know, the fact that I walked in to sell a silly comedy to YouTube, <laughs> yeah. which uh, did not sell. And but I I met with Brandon, the director, and I said, you know, and I happened to be working with Barry Average at the time. And I said, can I put you guys together? And it worked out. And here I am back home where I started my Mm -hmm. career, where I just blocks away, really, from where you started your career. But not only that, where I started my life and I'm cognizant, you know, I'm not that prevalent in the film industry, but TIFF is Mm -hmm. the consummate place uh, to, you know, I think it's the premier place to have a, a, a film debut, even more than Sundance or Venice or Palm Springs or Tribeca. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather be in Toronto. I don't know if that's just by virtue of me coming from Toronto, but the fact that it is my hometown, it is a huge event, and something that I'm this passionate about is being launched here. This was the premiere, and that people like you have been incredibly supportive. It's just seeming to uh, all come together because of uh, just an honest passion. Yeah, the stars have aligned for this one. We talked about empathy a little bit earlier, and I'm just going to sort of turn this around a little bit. Years ago, you were on a show called Make Me Laugh. Right. Where you were judged. Right. Now you're judging people. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this newfound... I don't know if it's newfound, but you're, the empathy that you were talking about, has that made you a different kind of judge? You've, you've been through it on the sta- uh, being on the, the side that's being judged, and as a stand-up. I mean, I guess you feel that everyone in the audience is judging you at, every time you open your mouth. But how has that empathy affected your job in that way? Totally. Empathy has affected those words. As soon as it's me too, and I feel like there's other people that are suffering, you know, being a judge, on, listen, it's a blessing. It's the best job I've ever had. But I also have a lot of empathy for anybody who walks out on stage to just try. That's what I do yeah. each and, you know, every day. You know, I'm walking on stage tomorrow night as I speak to you. You know, so I see these young people, well, young, middle-aged, older people who have hopes and dreams. And from the moment they walk out there with those cameras pointing, their life is never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Never. Regardless of whether you win or whether you, you know, it just doesn't work out for you, this is an event that will be a huge event in your life. So knowing that, I'm cognizant, you know, and, and they're paying me to be honest. I'm cognizant of how I, I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings. I think feelings get hurt sometimes with honesty, but I'm trying to be constructive. This business that you and I are in is the most damaging, 
hurtful. It can be brutal. It is yeah. brutal. Yeah. It is in the best case scenario. Even on the biggest shows, and in, in the more success, the more brutal it gets mm -hmm. because you believe that maybe you've come over a hump, and just when you think you've come over a hump, you're going to get kicked in the face even harder because from that mountain it hurts more. Yeah. But but the truth of the matter is, so it's made me, you know, there was a there was a, a saying as a little kid, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. The truth of the matter is, they do. Mm -hmm. They really do because we are so conditioned to be concerned about what other people think. We are – we really are and especially in this age of, you know, uh, digital media, you know, social media. I can't tell you how many times – and I read it yeah. just on Twitter or on Instagram how many horrible things that are said – you know, I get a lot of praise. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much praise you get. How many horrible – One bad tweet can ruin a day. Well, I get more than one, yeah, so yeah, yeah. my days are just hell, you know, but, but the truth is I get them and I see them and it hurts my feelings. Yeah. It really hurts. And I think what I do think is I think that person's trying to be funny or they're trying to be honest or they don't know that they're hurting me. And that's where we're going back to empathy because I wonder truly if they really thought that they were hurting me, would they still say it? Mm -hmm. I mean, do they have a reason to hurt me? They don't know me. You know, maybe that's it, though. Anonymity on the Internet is the thing, I think, that that has bred a certain kind of cruelty on places like Twitter and other forms of social media where people they, they don't ever they will never sit down and talk to you face to face. They would never say those terrible things to you face to face, but they feel comfortable doing it because they will. But never if they really it. knew if they really had empathy and that's where mm -hmm. empathy is and they knew if you could say, you know, those words you say really sent him into a depression, yeah. really triggered anxiety, really ruined somebody's death. If they really knew what that felt like, if you had real empathy where you had, you could feel what other people feel, would you do it? I they, think the answer is no. No, yeah. but they don't have, they're not empathetic people. Yeah. I wonder, you know, in America's Got Talent, if you ever think back to the photograph that I've never seen but read about one of your first shows with Diana Ross at Caesar's Palace and you were wearing a suit and uh, apparently the way you've described it in past years, you were so nervous that you were sweating through your suit. suit. I have that. I have yeah. that. I look at that all the time. And it, it must just... bring back memories of, of maybe a scared young guy who is about to have his life changed. And that's, you know, and I went on, she loved me and every night I stood in that room to such, at best... Um, just total disregard. Like indifference. Yeah, yeah indifference, because they're there to see <laughs> Diana Ross and not me. But there I am out there. You know, it's like you have those dreams where you show up at a party and you're naked, you yeah. know? And that's what I felt like. And, you know, the lights would go down, and they would just... You knew not only were they indifferent, that was at best. They wanted me because the longer I was, if I'm on stage, Diana Ross is not on stage. Right. So they just, to feel that hatred when you're just out there, you know, anybody who's willing to go in the show business, that's anybody that's on stage or is broadcasting or talking into a mic. We have the need, the crazy need to be accepted by people who don't really matter in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, they say that, uh, you know, one of the most frightening things in life is public speaking. Why? I remember when I started in comedy, I couldn't eat for the day, you know, because I would be sick. I would be nauseous having to get up and perform in front of an audience. 
then I got jobs each and every day and I just didn't want to starve, you know, but I'm, and I'm comfortable with discomfort now, Yeah. you know, a discomfort kind of makes me feel alive. Complacency is just boring, but, uh, I realize that everybody's uncomfortable. It's just what level of discomfort do we all have? Do you still have one of the booths from Caesar's Palace in I your do. office? Do I, you? have, I have the center booth in my office from the original Caesar's Palace showroom, which was knocked down yeah. to create the new place for Celine Dion. You know, but the original, I sit in that booth sometimes, and I think <laughs> you know Frank Sinatra played in front of all the yeah. greats played in front of this, and I'm just this goofy kid from Toronto who has this in my office. And what does it, we've got a minute left, what does it mean to you? Is it just a reminder or is it an artifact or what is it? It means everything. Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times a week I say to my wife, because she's also from Toronto, we've been together 40 years, I go, look at this. Look at, I got, like, see, I had never <laughs> been to Vegas, now I got the center thing. Or look at this. Or even the fact that I'm sitting on this show right now at this time in my life, in my 60s, talking about something I did, it's just, wow, this is never where I would have dreamed, expected, thought I was going, this is not a something that I had a plan, you know, and my life is a happening. And, e and the fact that I have the ability to write a check to get a short made called On My Way Out that I believe is life-changing, that if nothing else will show at TIFF, is such a wow, aha moment for me. It's interesting how in your life, literally kind of a mistake almost made a huge difference for the latter half of your life. But what I realize it from this uh, point, that's everybody's like, you know, mistakes and uh, you probably progress more in life, everyone, from the mistakes than from the successes. I, I always think life is like jazz. It's the mistakes that give it the, the kind of, you know... They really do. Yeah. And the problem with most people who don't feel like they've achieved what they deserve to achieve, you will find that those are the people that work really hard at overthinking so they don't make a mistake. Right. Every decision is painstaking. Every decision is really thought out. And they, you know, they rise to a certain level, but they go, why couldn't I be doing that? Why couldn't I be doing this? And if you're willing to slip and slide and fall and get up and slip and slide, you end up at a higher plateau than the person that has done planning. And what I've lived by, the credo, which came late in my career and, and written by Nike, was just do it. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, the, the plan of being a stand-up comic and showing up at Yuck Yucks was everything I've ever been, I said this many times, everything I was ever punished for, expelled for, hit for, <laughs> is what I started getting paid for. Yeah. And the fact that I showed up on an amateur night at Yuck Yucks and got this, to think 40 years later, I'm sitting and talking to you about a very serious, life-changing short doc at the Toronto International Film Festival is amazing. But it wouldn't have happened if I didn't show up doing what, you know, I don't have a GED, right, right, right. you know, and I think that I'm, you know, I'm just so proud that I'm a small part. I hope, you know, one person sees the film. I hope that they get access to it. I hope that somebody, you know, shares this film. I'm doing what I can do, you know, to get it seen. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the first step. This was the world premiere. But, uh, and I hope it continues. I never would have, if you would have asked me two years ago, do you think you'll be doing a short, dramatic life-changing doc at TIFF, I probably would have said, 
what are you what are you talking about? Yeah. But uh, two years ago, I'm still on this path. I don't know what I'll be talking to you about a decade from now. Well, here's the thing. So I'm doing the research for this interview. So I just have it all in my head. And there is so much. You have had so many television projects, so many different kinds of things. It always seems like a very restless kind of spirit that you have. It's always looking forward. You're always pitching new ideas. You're always trying to – it doesn't feel to me like you look back very often, that you're always sort of looking forward, and the most exciting thing is the next thing. I don't look forward. I look at now. Really? You know, I have this watch that, that I'm not wearing right now, but it says on it uh, – on the face of the watch, it says now. And when somebody says, what time is it? <laughs> I say it's now because that's the only thing that's real. And when I'm, uh, I'm an impulsive person and, you know, if I thought about getting on stage at Yak Yaks, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I was at, at the table when they said, does any amateurs want to get up at noon? And the friends, I went, okay, I didn't really plan. If you plan the future, I don't think you can make the future happen. Right. But if you know what you're doing right now and if you do what you want to do, Things will happen. You know, if you feel like moving your right foot forward, move your right foot forward. And then if you feel like moving your left foot forward, move your left foot forward. And then if you feel like moving your right foot forward, move that one. And then just keep doing those in the moments. I promise you, you will be someplace else. You'll move forward. Mm -hmm. And it's not because you plan to get there. It's plan one step at a time. Right. So it's like if – not that I'm bringing it full circle about this film – but when I was told that this was a documentary about somebody coming out at 95 who's been holding a secret and the whole family, including his own children, didn't know, I said, I'm going to pay for it. I didn't know what I got myself. I didn't know right. what that would cost. I didn't know it was a 40-minute short doc. I didn't know that I was going to call Barry Averich. So I didn't – I just said, let's do this. And he went, Okay. And now I'm in it. Yeah. And then I call Barry Average and he said, yeah, he can get it done. He'll, he'll, and he'll work and he'll get it done. And I said, just call me whenever you need a check and I'll write a check. And then I didn't know it would get into the Toronto Film Festival. And I didn't know I'd be sitting here with you today. So I wonder, had I said, we're going to make, I'm going to find a very mm -hmm. serious film and then I'm going to try to attempt to get it into the film festival. And it's going to, I don't know that I could have planned this, right. but life happens. And I think that a lot of us kind of avoid these happenings because they're afraid they're going to slip and fall. And I slip and fall all the time, you know, but I like being out there on the ice and I am out there on the ice. And that's what life is. You know, I'm well, just skating around trying to stay up and do my thing. Is it accurate? Because I have read this, but only in one source. And I try to poke around and I try and find three sources for everything when I throw a fact like this out. But in 19 or in 2003... I've read where you considered quitting. I did. Where you just said, okay, this is probably it. I, and, and why, first of all. And then what was it that pushed you over that hump? So I was uh, doing a lot in this business, as we talked about. It's a knockdown. Mm -hmm. I, I, you would think by 2003, having done St. Elsewhere and films and whatever I had done up until that point, you know, I felt I was going backwards. You know, uh, less people were showing up to the live shows. Um, the I, I did a pilot or two that I was getting noted to death on. Like the yeah. the networks were suggestions, get, uh, suggestions, but th th when they write the check, it's more than a, it's a demand, right. and th they weren't going to air, and everything was 
kind of failing. And in fact, uh, you know, well, failing is all a, a perception. Again, right. you know, I the truth of the matter is, I, I was in a really is bad paid to do a pilot. Right. Where 98 percent of the Screen my, Actors Guild doesn't. My ever. mindset was yeah. not good. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, not good is an understatement. I was in a horrible depression. I was finished. And, you know, I've been lucky enough in the last few years where I don't have to make decisions for money. And I got called at, at the beginning of 2004, the end of 2004. And they said, we want you to do a game show. And there couldn't have been a worse call as far as here. Here I am not, you know, taking my own medicine. Yeah. Uh, I just went, are you kidding me? And I thought that at that time, if you think about it, around 2004, 2005, there wasn't another comedian doing games. Right. Now you have Steve Harvey yeah. and Jeff Foxworthy and, you know, you name it. There's yeah. a million people doing it. But there wasn't. In fact, when you trade in irony, the game show host was the punchline. That's right. So I believed in my own mind that that was the nail in the coffin of my career. Not only do I not want to be a game show host, I don't want anybody to know I ever hosted a game show because it's like a joke. And I can't even, I'm trying to sell tickets to comedy. It's not, and I was just depressed and I hung up the phone and they kept pursuing. It was deal or no deal. Yeah, yeah. And they kept pursuing, and I was in a horrible depression. And uh, luckily, I have a very smart wife who said, just do it. And that's yeah, yeah. why you're not doing your own thing. Just do it. I go, but it's embarrassing. It doesn't matter. You're sitting at home, and you're sinking. I usually, and if you look at my resume, I like to stay busy because yeah. I don't like the voices in my head. I like to be distracted. I went and did it. And I went and did it, and I was so embarrassed by doing it because I had these plans to be incredibly... Um, entertaining. Right. And I don't know if uh, you've ever heard the story, but the very first, I'll never forget, the very first show, I'll, I never forget, the, the woman's name was Karen Van. That was the contestant. And I came out and I had all these funny lines and I was going to be this, the most insane um, game show host you ever saw. And I said, what's your name? And she said, I'm Karen Van. I said, tell me about yourself. And she said she has three kids and they were sitting right there and her family. And in that moment, it became real to me that that was a human being. And this yeah. is about the now, yeah. okay? And then I went, and then you could also see if you've ever been around somebody who's not been on television or on the radio and you put a, a, a lay person in a studio with 500 people, 10 cameras around them, all the lights glaring yeah. at them, you know, millions of dollars of cases and all these yeah. things, I noticed the glaze over her Eyes. Like she wasn't really, this was overwhelming. Yeah. So she wasn't listening to me. And she had told me she'd never owned a home. She didn't have insurance. She's taking care of three kids. And then I kind of threw all my jokes by the wayside because I thought if I distract her and she makes a decision, a bad decision based on me being really funny right. or distract her. I couldn't live with that. That's not what it's about. So that's how I even got my cadence. So like even when the when the banker showed up the first time and phoned, I would say, you know, the offer, I started talking very slow right. and it is $20,000, Karen, deal or no deal. You know, it was, a, it was more about, do you hear yeah. what I'm saying? And then I thought, I didn't do any of my comedy. I was just being, I had empathy. Yep. That, was, that was after the fact of people knowing I was, because mm -hmm. it, it became more about, I don't want to get a big laugh to 300 people in the studio, which may be edited out later. And then you didn't hear that the offer was $50,000, didn't make any sense to you because you were so 
taken with my performance. And that might be more money than you make in a year. It and, would be, yeah. and, and it's life-changing. So I made sure that she, uh, with whatever power I mm -hmm. could, had at least understood what was going on and made her own decisions clearly. Yeah. And I, when the show aired, I was out of the country. I didn't want to see it. But when I came back, it was the biggest phenomena at the moment. I will tell you, I was on that soundstage. I was shooting uh, at Culver City soundstage, right? So yeah. I was shooting interviews with Nicolas Cage there once, and I went around and I looked, and someone showed me, oh, this is where they shot part of the original King Kong, and this is where they did the Burning of Atlantis sequence and Gone with the Wind, and this is where they did that. And I'm showing someone, and a stagehand came over and said, hey, you want to see something cool? That's where they do Deal or No Deal next door. And that, to him, because it's success-oriented, right? That yeah. other stuff was in the past. That was the big deal for him. But what came out, I, it, it, it afforded me, when that came out, it blew me up right. as far as, that's the most success I've ever had. And I did nothing. I really did nothing. I was just myself. I just cared about you. That's why, the, you know, even on uh, NBC, they have Hollywood Game Night. I'll right. never, I never, you've never seen me on it. And I'm on NBC. And the reason is, or any of those game shows where I might be responsible for somebody losing because right. I'm, so like it kills me. It would break my heart to have somebody walk away with $10 less because I had a funny idea, yeah, yeah. you know? So I don't do those shows. But I came back and then people were celebrating my hosting skills because of the, I think because of the empathy, because I was just being real and I really rooted for you and I wanted you to win and I just played the game. I didn't do anything on that game. I, there's no talent in what I did on that game. That was Howie Mandel on The Secret Life of Nanny and Poppy, On My Way Out. It's a great short documentary. Check it out. Somehow, you'll be able to see it somewhere. It'll come to VOD. It'll be one of those things you're flipping around on Netflix and you see it and you think, what the hell is this? Well, check it out. It's really worth 40 minutes of your time. That's it for us, though, this week. Thank you for coming by. My thanks to Howie Mandel. Get to see a little kind of serious side of him. He wasn't uh, that character that you've seen so often on television and everywhere else on stage. He's uh, a serious guy that uh, really wants to do good work with the money that he's been fortunate enough to make. So thanks to Howie Mandel. Most of all, though, thanks to you for coming by. We're here every single week. We put up a new show every Monday, but it wouldn't be the same if you weren't here with us. So please come back and see us frequently every week at least tell your friends because you never know who's going to stop by for a visit here and you know maybe it'll be one of your favorite people and you don't want to miss that 